No, I didn't. <laughs> She knows you well. Something's with this. But anyway, let's let's start. I want to get going. Um, I transferred, and I was in a lit crit course that was required for an English major, and we had a poetry or a section on poetry. I'd never read poetry. There were a couple of poems, but nothing to speak of. And remember when we started poetry, I was so confused. It was so, I didn't understand it. I went to the teacher and said, I don't understand it. It's like reading Latin. I'll never forget his words. He said, poetry is putting together words that form a statement about human experience. Poetry is putting words together to form a statement about human experience. It's, it's like it shattered this wall that, you know, that he made it so simple. It was like it was within my reach then. Because before that, I was just honestly mystified. But Hopkins was one of the people we read, and once again, I'd had this experience that I, I didn't realize language could do what poets do with language, and I was taken by it. We've read The Wind Tower, remember, it's that poem about a bird and catching the air. This is Kingfisher Catches Catch Fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells, sells, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, axing God's eye, but in God's eye he is Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Everything in nature speaks. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. The stones speak. Each tuck, each, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, Finds tongue. Remember, a bell has the clapper, it's called a tongue. To fling out broad its name, each mortal thing does one thing and the same deals out that being indoors each one dealt. Science can't get to being. Science is a philosophic term, it's, it's ontological, it has to do with the being of things. And if all things have being, it's because they have their source in being itself, the capital B. Remember, when God and Moses met, God said to Moses, tell them. My, Moses said, what do I call you? <laughs> it's like meeting a stranger, what do I call you? He said, I am that am. God named himself, in naming himself, he made himself a person. He is being itself. All things share in his being. If that's true, all things speak, okay? 
deals out that being endures each one dwells selves. Each thing has a self. St. Thomas would say each thing is a subject in its own right. This is crucial. You, those in the class would know this. We tend to objectify things. Connie's there. Suzanne's there. David's there. I'm here. We tend to see each other as objects. But we know that each one of us is a subject. We can say I. We have this interior life that we can express. So every one of us has this interior life. Okay? But we tend to objectify. We make things object. The great point of marriage is to try to overcome that dichotomy. So we're not just objects to each other. We enter into the self of another person and become one. Yeah? Feels that that being endures each one dwells selves, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying. What I do is me, for that I came. Okay? Um, it's watch the, the remember the, oct the Italian sonnet is, consists of an octave, eight lines, and then a sestet. I say more the just, notice how he's using verbs. I say more the just man justices. It's an act of, it's an act of virtue. What he's doing is being just. He's enacting it, making it real with everything he does, keeps grace. It keeps all his goings graces. Okay? For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men. We were all made in the image of God. Christ is the means of creation. Each one of us carries an image of him. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Okay? Let me stop. I'll take a quick question, and that's it. Because we've got to get on. It's not a class in poetry, sadly. Or, sorry, there's no bad fortune. God, where is there to hide? Where is there to hide anymore? Oh, we've got something. Oh, we can hear them now. Yeah. Um, Melody, can they say something? Hi. Oh, well, yeah, we can. We can hear you now. Just remember what you did. Okay, I'm, so we're, we're on. Okay, let's go to Fide Ratio. Today is supposed to be a work day. A work day. Um, very quickly, I want to um, I want to just look at some of the things we did last week. Um, and then pick up with where Pope John Paul left off, okay? So, we are at the end of Fidia Ratio. I want to make um, just a couple of general outline statements, observations, um, that hopefully will put this into a larger context. Um, one of the things that we're reminded of in John Paul's encyclical is um, what modern philosophy and what the modern sciences have done to our world, particularly to us as humans. Okay? Modern sciences cannot deal with ultimate questions. They cannot answer the question, where do we come from? 
The Big Bang will, doesn't explain anything. Um, our belief from Scripture, from Revelation, that, and remember, Revelation is given to us by God to help us win our salvation. Because without it, we can't make it. We need help. Modern science can't deal with these ultimate questions. But one of the things we should not forget, according to our faith, is this. Each one of us is made in the image of God. Those of you who've done Dante would know this better than most people because you remember when we did Dante together, when Dante and Beatrice were left the purgatorio, the earthy paradise, and ascended into the heavens, that what we saw was the glory of creation, that there was a form giver for all these things that Dante had encountered would have not had form the Earth, the Moon, Venus, the Sun, Mercury, the whole unity of the universe. The word universe comes from unity. It, it has an order. Evolution could have produced something that complex. Evolution can't explain the creation of the protein, which is the building block of our lives. They can't explain that. How in the world are they going to explain something as complex as the universe? When we went, when we had that trip, we saw that the greatest thing in creation was man. Um, it, you haven't done this. If we stay together, we'll do it. In St. Francis, we read Flannery O'Connor, who's a modern Catholic um, writer, a woman. She died from lupus at a really young age, but an extraordinary writer. In one of her novels called um, The Heart of the Park, one of the characters is obsessed with another character and starts following him around, and they end up in a museum. And it's like they've been heading towards a mystery. What's this guy doing? Where's he going? They enter the museum, and this one guy following the other is led up to a case, a glass case. In the case is, is, a, is a shrunken man. It's Flannery O'Connor's image of modern man. If we're no more than a product of blind forces or apes or monkeys or what, then our characters shrunk. We no longer see ourselves as images of God, made in the image of God. Okay? So one of the things I just want to remind everybody of is the, our belief that we're made in the image of God, that we, uh, we were created with the mind of being reunited with Him and recovering our unity, the glory that we shared with him. Think about how different that is from any view that science can give us today. So, um, this is Easter, we're in the Easter octave. God thought well enough of his creation, he loved us enough to ask his son, who was divine, to empty himself, kenosis, it's the word will come on, will, Encounter here in the seventh chapter, kenosis, to empty himself and take on the form of a man to redeem us. That's a divine love. That's not just an accident of proteins and forces meeting. Um, that's an expression of an infinite divine love. So the view that our faith gives us is that this extraordinary end that we're all asked to come to to, to recover our union with God. Okay, so. One of the things that we have to struggle with in all these questions that we're going to take on later is the modern view leaves us with an image of ourselves as being puny, shrunken. If you look at the material universe just in material terms, with the materials view, 
The infinite goes on, or the universe goes on forever. Yeah, it's endless, it just goes on. At the center of it, from our perspective, is this puny thing called man. Um, but one of the things that Easter gives us um, is a different view. That our God loved us enough to undergo a death to take on our sins because we, we were unjust to God. Our life, in our fall began with an act of injustice. Only a man, who, only a God who could become man could have answered that injustice. So what he did was return, restore a justice to the world in an act of an extraordinary supernatural love. That it was great enough that God would die for it. Okay? So that's the world we just came out of, the Easter, and we're in the Easter octave. So. One of the things that John Paul makes clear in the last two chapters it's, is, and it will be one of the focuses of our attention tonight, and um, I'm sorry that I think it was the other one, but I think Michelle, it was you too that raised this question, which I was really glad you raised. Um, <laughs> how can language be adequate to capture, to convey the kinds of truths we're talking about. Yeah? Words. How can words do that? But one of the things he's going to end on is one of the principles he's going to end Fidel Ratio on is the importance of being able to receive these truths and convey them in language. And in a language somebody else can understand. That is, to go back to what we were looking at in chapter 6, um, when there are divisions between us and other people, racial, ethnic, um, neighborly, whatever it is, um, do we make the effort to see a person where that person is, and can we respond um, to the differences between us using our powers of reason? Okay, that's the whole thrust of this encyclical. I'm going to ask you to do something. Can you, can you share with everybody the statement that you made to me when we were driving up about um, what this class was doing, reading this encyclical? Oh, I just said that I thought... Can you speak up, Doug? That I think it's amazing that you guys are struggling with this pretty heavy-duty philosophical treatise, letter, whatever you call it. Encyclical. Um, and you're, if you're like me, you're slogging through it, um, understanding some of it, some of it shaking your head at. Um, but what you're doing is what a lot of priests don't do. We've come across a couple of priests since we started thinking about this work. We've never read it. Um, and it's such an important work for understanding the plan of salvation and understanding our ability to evangelize. And these are priests. Oh, I know. I get it. They're busy. They don't have seven kids. They have a whole community. But whatever. They're too busy to do this. They don't have wives around to remind them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Melody, can you, can, did you hear Suzanne? 
Sorry? What's wrong? I heard everything. Yes, I heard everything, yes. Good, okay. okay. I just Why thought, am I so loud? <laughs> it's not you, it's, I, I, I don't even know what to do with these speakers. Blame Mike. Uh, Mike, can you do anything with the volume? Can you turn it down? I don't even know what to do. Can we turn it down? Yeah. I think it's it's just coming off, is it through my computer? Or it probably the, is. The oh, volume was way up. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's on the computer. Yeah. Well, we can turn it down. Yeah. Can you move the computer a little bit so that we can see better at the podium? Okay. What? Yeah. They want to see you at the podium. Or the computer closer to you. It needs to. It needs to this way. Doc, can you help? Can you just move it? You guys are so fussy. <laughs> other way. Oh, the other, other way. The other way. Oops. They got volume now. It's already turned down. Yeah, I turned it. Yeah. Yeah, it's down. It was on his computer. It was. I don't know. She wants you to turn it. The, yeah. Turn turn it this way, Suzanne. Towards us. Yeah. Then he won't show. That's good, Doc. Is that good? No, she, no, she likes that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Okay, let's um, let's start. The, the the point that I want to underscore here is we've been called to evangelize. Oh, this is so important. I'm so glad she made the point she did. When we we're talking about it because she's been reading it, and I every once in a while ask her how she finds it, and her comment is always the same. It's so hard to read. It's not an easy read. I mean, reading, when we get to C.S. Lewis and Chesterton, they're good. Lewis, or Chesterton's a journalist. Lewis is a, um, an apologist. He's an <coughs> educated writer. He writes simply and you know, beautifully. John Paul, here, in fact, let me, I'm glad to come to this. John Paul has this burden. Um, he has an obligation. He feels a deep obligation to the whole tradition beginning with Christ to today. He's carrying that. So he's not in a, in a world of, of Christians who believe that saving or being saved by Christ now is all you have to be concerned of it. He's trying to carry forward a tradition and he's trying to honor all of the popes who've written encyclicals before him. So I'm, sure, I'm assuming all of you had this problem when you're reading Fidia Ratio, he's constantly talking about other encyclicals and other popes. And unless you're a, his, a Catholic historian, you're, you're probably, I mean, that's why in my notes, I've tried to identify the encyclicals, the, the, uh, the councils, you know. Um, I, I'm not aware of those things. I mean, I have, I have to work hard to catch up. But it, I think it's one of the reasons this is not an easy thing to read because he's trying to gather a whole tradition and say, here's what we've been called to. If I could summarize it at a point, I'd say, we have to understand the Word of God, and we have to struggle with our powers of, of language, use whatever gifts of language we have to communicate our faith in a way that another person could understand. Can I use you? Um, when Karen and Bob arrived tonight, we haven't seen her because she's been away visiting. She said she 
had a visit with her sister, and I guess um, Karen had made a comment watching something like, that things are so bad today. And her sister's response was, of course they are, because we're evil. <laughs> and Karen said, we're not evil. I'm not going to go into it at that point. But, but her, it, it's as if her sister suddenly had a light go on, because somebody whom she loves, somebody turned things a different way that made it possible for her to see things in a different way. In a simple thing like, we're damaged, was your word? My word is always, we're wounded. <coughs> We are, our essence has never been destroyed. That's not a Catholic position, that's Protestant. We're ruined, we're depraved, and we are evil. I mean, that, that is such, to me, it's an inhuman view. But suddenly, she could speak this in, how hard is it? We're wounded. It doesn't take a PhD to use those words. Now, I'm, that just takes a sort of commonplace wisdom or a sympathy with somebody else, or, you know. So John Paul is saying to us, we've, we've received the complete truth. Nobody else has. God gave it to those who would believe in him. There was no Catholic religion before Christ entered his body. He was Jewish. He was raised in a Jewish household to obey the law. He was raised Jewish. He was not Catholic. That comes later with the founding of the church. Um, we've been given a responsibility to take what God has given us to the world and speak it, okay? But how can we do that if we don't use our common sense, our powers of reason? So what John Paul is doing is not arbitrary. He's speaking to, uh, you've already heard him, just um, reinforcing our, you know, the point of the whole thing. He's speaking to the most rationalistic, educated world that's ever existed. Education is more widely a part of our world than ever before in history. So people enter adulthood thinking they know everything, they've learned everything, they're smart. So how do we use reason to answer the, the conditions that we've inherited, all the, uh, the disorders that John Paul is, I'll, I'll put them on the board shortly. Okay. So let me quickly go back. Turn to page, for those of you at 92, Connie, I'll get the, I'll give it in a second. This is in um, section 72, 72 on page 92. John Paul is talking about um, the second Vatical and the publication of the letter called Nostra Etate, or Etat. Um, he says, in India particularly, it's the duty of Christians, and he goes on, in this work of discernment, which finds its inspiration in the Council's declaration, Nostra Etate, or Etate, certain criteria will have to be kept in mind. The first of these is the universality of the human spirit whose basic needs are the same in the most disparate cultures. The second, which derives from the first, is this. In engaging great cultures for the first time, the church cannot abandon what she's gained from her inculturation in the world of Greco-Latin thought. To reject this heritage would be to deny the providential plan of God. If we reject it, we will slip in to a historicist way of looking at the world, because you know from what he says, 
Historicism, which is a defining characteristic of our world, means all things are relative to their historical period. So it was true 500 years ago, it's not true today. What was true 1,500 years ago was not true 1,000, you know, everything's relative. And he's saying no, because it's in our Greek-Roman heritage that we were, that our powers of reason and imagination were first developed, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, helped us see that powers of reason could attain universal truths. We know from Plato that we can know what justice is universally. Because if we don't have a concept of that um, universal notion, how do we make judgments based on the particular instances? If that's not clear, think about people who today who think, because they're historicists, that if a person is, has committed a murder and put in jail, judges release him two weeks later because their assumption is he did that because he's a product of historical forces and he's not guilty for it, put him back out on the street. That's a purely historicist way of seeing the world. Is that clear? Nope. Is that clear? If, if there are no universal truths and everything's a function of a historical period, which is what a lot of people believe today, then when a criminal does something, he's not responsible for it because the sin that he's committed is endemic, it's systemic. It's in our culture, it's given. He's not responsible for that. He's a victim of forces over which he had no control. So put him back out on the street. <coughs> is that clear? Okay, so he's saying we cannot lose that heritage. Go to page, back to 85. This is um, section 66 in the middle of it. It's necessary, therefore, that the mind of the believer acquire a natural, consistent, and true knowledge of created realities the world and man himself. We have to have some grasp of the nature of the universe, man himself, which are also the object of divine revelation because God put his mind on this stuff too. Still more, reason must be able to articulate this knowledge in concept and argument. We have to draw on conceptual knowledge. I mean, just the way Karen did. What section is that? Section 66. Is everybody clear? When Karen said to her sister, we're not evil, we're wounded, that's a radically different understanding. That was a conceptual notion. She had a concept of her mind. There are two conceptual perspectives on our fall. One of them said, and they're both Christian, one of them said the, fall, the effects of the fall are complete. We were destroyed, we were ruined. We became evil, Inher inherently evil. That's why the Protestants don't turn to nature. That's why they don't trust reason. Those are natural things. She had a, she had a distinction in her mind between a, um, one understanding of the fall, which was that we're evil, and another that says we're wounded. And I, I gather that the, the response of her sister was like a light going on. That for Karen to say that raised questions in her sister's mind. It may have been the beginning of looking at things in a new way. All right? 
That was a concept. But she made it particular in the particular instant. She drew on a universal, made it real in that moment, in a way that had an effect. Still more reason must be able to articulate this knowledge in concept and argument. She did not have to be, pardon my swear word, D, PhD. She's a sister. She was wiser than most of the PhD people I know. <laughs> Still more reason must be able to articulate this knowledge and concept and argument. Speculative dogmatic theology must presuppose and implies the philosophy of the human being, the world, and more radically of being, which has objective truth as its foundation. We call that philosophy ontology, the study of being. Hopkins' poem dependent on it. There's a being in all things. Turn to page 88. I'm giving it. Be patient. <laughs> um, this is section 69 and heading towards 70. There is some truth in these claims which are acknowledged in the teachings of the Council. Reference to the sciences is often helpful in allowing us that it does a more thorough knowledge of the subject under study but it should not mean the rejection of a typically philosophical and critical thinking which is concerned with the universal Karen drew Wait, I hope that's clear. She drew on the universal truth. If what she said was true, it was true universally of every Catholic presumably holding its faith, right? Whoever that person is in the particular instance, she was drawing on a concept that was universal and true for everybody. There's no Catholic, according to our understanding, who's not wounded. And there is no Catholic who can be defined in terms of depravity, evil. That person may use his free will to do evil things, but it's not because he starts evil. It's because he's wounded and begins to do things. So she was drawing on a universal notion. Indeed, this kind of thinking is required for a fruitful exchange between cultures and between sisters. I hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> it makes me sound a lot better than it was. No, I'm not. I'm, I don't think it was. I hope, if I'm overdoing it, tell me. Just give me a look or something, okay? Use it how you want. Because you're just, you're, what happened was, it was a perfect illustration of what. That's awesome is required for a fruitful exchange between cultures. What I wish to emphasize is the duty to go beyond the particular and concrete, lest the prime task of demonstrating the universal of faith's content be abandoned. We lose it. Yeah? Go to 80, see. Um. Now, Christ said, this is just 70, section 70, from the time the gospel was first preached, the church has known the process of encounter and engagement with cultures. Was that not true? When the disciples went everywhere in the world and had to deal with people who didn't speak their language, who did, who knew, who did not experience, have a first-hand experience of a God who died and rose again. They're not in their heads. They had an actual experience, seeing a man that was crucified alive shortly afterwards. 
That was not an abstraction. It's not, the, it's not a probability from science. It was an actual fact. It happened. That's crucial. All the ancient myths, every single, most myths of every country have some sense of a dying god. Almost all of them do. India, Europe, all of them. Greece, Rome. And all of them had some sense of um, a god rising again, of, of gods doing heroic things. Every culture, most cultures have myths. But we're not talking about a myth, and we're not talking in scientific terms about a probability. We're talking about something that actually happened. Either that guy was nuts, and everything he said should be dismissed, or he was God, and his actions proven. So, um, Christ said to his disciples, go out to the world and evangelize. Take out this message what, and baptize. What were his words? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was his last commission to his disciples. Yeah? Baptize. Help them enter this, this world of faith. How could they do that if they didn't learn to struggle with cultural differences and different languages? So in 70, even to the ends of the earth, Christ says, in order to pass on the truth which he revealed, led the Christian community to recognize from the first the universality, there it is again, of its message and the difficulties created by cultural differences. And I love the follow-up passage from Paul. <coughs> Paul writes, <coughs> what he's doing is just put, here it is, did Paul have a theologian before him who could explain in conceptual terms what Christ did? No. i ask it again. Did Paul have before him a theologian who could take what happened in terms of literary, concrete experiences and put them in a conceptual language that most people could understand? Did he have anybody before him? No, he did not. He took immediate experiences and conceptualized them. He's the first theologian. Is that clear? He's taking concrete experiences, not concepts, not ideas that have been passed on. He's taking the actual actions of Christ and analyzing them and putting them in a conceptual language that can be understood universally. There are no excuses for us. <laughs> None. None. It may not be easy. I don't think it is. That doesn't mean we're not called to do it. Um, Peter thought of himself as a very simple man. I think all the disciples were fairly simple men. But This is what Paul says. The apostle writes, Now in the blood of now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near in the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down the wall of hostility. <coughs> he took away every ethnic, sexual, national, racial, boundary division. That statement, you could take it as a founding statement of Catholicism. We're all one. We cannot let the differences that I just described keep us apart. 
and I don't want to romanticize this right now. I just don't want to. The cost of it is the cross. Yeah? The cost of it is the cross. So. Page 90. Um, this is one of those beautiful examples of what we've been talking about that I know of. Cultural context permeates the living of Christian faith. This is um, section 71. To every culture, Christians bring the unchanging truth of God, which he reveals in the history and culture of a people. Time and again, therefore, in the course of the centuries, we have seen repeated the event witnessed by the pilgrims in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We are approaching that day. Right. We are approaching that day. When is it? Do you know? Huh? Hearing the apostles, they asked one another. They're looking at each other in wonder, absolute bewilderment. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They're all Galileans. They're united by one tongue. How is that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, it goes on and on. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. How amazing is that? And I, um, I just feel my, I've got to be really careful here. I'm not... Um, encouraging speaking in tongues or you know or, I mean there's a miraculous inspiration going on here I think it's like Peter when he says to Christ you are I mean something miraculous is going on but I think we know that very often just in the simplicity of our hearts if we're speaking the truth of something that's not familiar to somebody else that they will hear something they didn't hear before sorry Karen <laughs> um, can we describe what happened with Karen's sister as the effect of hearing another voice, another tongue, something she hadn't heard before? I'm stretching that, I know, metaphorically, but you're all following. Mm -hmm. um, we're called to take Christ to the world and trust in our language that our understanding is deep enough that, or, and our love to be with him that, um, to carry this, I keep using it. We're not asked to beat people over the head with bats, um, but we are asked to take him. And I thought what she did was wonderful. Let me stop, that's just a quick review. I wanna, I wanna turn to chapter seven um, to, to finish this up. But any questions or comments or observations on, because we really are coming to the end of our work on this. Any. Mary, yes. Well, something I want to mention about Karen's uh, sister. To me, there are so many people that look at the bad side of things. That's all they see. Yeah. Like a lot of people right now complaining about sneezing and coughing and running eyes and when it's all this allergy stuff. And I feel pretty bad myself. But if that didn't happen, the world wouldn't go on. The, the earth. Because we need the pollination, you know, and all of that. So... <laughs> I think you have to, people tend to just look at the bad side. Yeah.
Remember uh, Melody's reminder today, you know, Boethius, who, some of you weren't there when we did it, so I'm, I know I'm speaking in the dark for some of you, but one of the greatest works of the Middle Ages was a, a, a work called Consolation of Philosophy written by Boethius. Boethius is one of the few men who wrote a, wrote a treatise on the Trinity. It's just a remarkable man. He wrote this little book um, in, while he was in prison, being accused of a crime he didn't commit and um, was going to be executed. And he begins whining and crying and looking only at the dark side and Lady Philosophy appears and she walks him through this um, these stages of um, recalling to him, helping him to remember what his beginnings were and his ends. He began with God and, you know. And she takes him to his, a point, and at one point she says um, that there's no bad fortune. No bad fortune. And we're to understand that in this sense, God created no evil. God created no evil. If you, I mean, we, in Easter, the first reading, I'm assuming it's true for everybody, the first reading in the Easter uh, vigil is from Genesis. God created, you know, the first day, evening came, morning followed. God, I love that. Evening came, morning followed, the first day. He looked at it, it was good. The second day, he looked at it, it was good. Evening came, morning followed, the second day. Day after day, good, 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 good. The Protestant world believes that the effects of the fall were bad. So it, it should be no surprise to any of us, none, none, that we live in a country that's general view of the world is dark. To go into this world any other way is not to see our country for its character. That's at the root of who we are. That was our founding. Say again. I live in a microcosm of America where my parents are Baptists and uh, strong houses. And they have a dark view. Yeah, yeah. Dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even them caring for them where they're caring for Yeah, yeah. And I'm coming from a totally different viewpoint. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an island group for me. Now, we're converts. Yeah. We're Protestant yeah. converts. Yeah. So we kind of know where they're coming from. But we've been Catholics now for about 15 years, and I just see such a total difference in how we look yeah. at everything. You know. There's a tremendous paradigm shift between. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm calling it a shipwreck. <laughs> That's my <laughs> Paradigm shift is nicer than. For, if, for those, anybody who's going to go on with this, I mean, those of you who've been doing the literature, when we get through with this, because we finished Shakespeare, I, gotta, I might be not putting this together in my head right. We are going to go to Hawthorne and Melville and Dostoevsky. And if you read Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, you're going to see this up close. I mean, that's our founding. Hawthorne's dealing with our founding. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's a wonderful, sensitive... It's Hawthorne's attempt to bring something into our Protestant founding that the Protestant founding didn't have. It's a, it's a poet, again, doing... But, Anyway, that's, but it's a dark world, for sure. And science has done very little to help it because science is good at analyzing and seeing bad things like Freud or, you know, we've got all these perverse, universal to all of us, these, these things that all of us have. Let's go on. I want to quickly do seven. 
I want to, I want to put, I want to put the burden on you guys tonight. I want to send this out to you. Um, turn to page 100. Once again, I want to just try, try to go quickly through Jean-Paul and, and get, um, get to this point where we can pool our resources and see what we can come up with. On page 100, this is, this is chapter 7, the very first page, section 80. From the Bible, this is the very first paragraph 80 in the middle. From the Bible, there emerges also a vision of man as imago Dei, as the image of God. This vision offers indications regarding man's life. Wait, by the way, I can't. I'm haunted by Mary's comment and some of the comments you've been making. If you grew up, wait, by the way, Catholics are not free of addictions. Catholics are, you know, um, I, I know from my own struggles as a Catholic and somebody who takes my faith seriously, I don't have to look beyond my own sins to see this, but we know if we're awake that people who end up in AA or drug addictions or whatever addiction program it is, um, we know that addictions are not uncommon in our culture. They're very much a part of our culture. Would it be easier to have an addiction in a culture um, that sets you out in, out in life saying, you're evil, you're corrupt? Or would it be easier if you were in a culture in which you were told when you set off in life that you were inherently good? You would fall, make mistakes, you'd go to confession. You know, but in which culture would it be easier to slip into an addiction or a habit of sin? Isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you see? Because if that's our nature, you'd have to struggle really hard or turn to Christ in a dramatic way to get out of it. That's a dark thing to start with. I'm assuming. I mean, it's just, Mary, it's, I'm trying to just pick up your point because I think it's real. So we shouldn't, I mean, if we're talking about overcoming divisions and boundaries, they can be in our family. They could be in spouses. That we're asked not to let those divisions or cultural differences, the sins we carry, <coughs> drinking, gambling, name it, whatever it is, spending too much or being wasteful. We, we, are called, we are called not to resign ourselves. That's a purely Protestant notion. Calvin's notion was we're predestined. They're going to be the way they, that's a very Eastern notion. Things are going to be the way they are. We are not to resign. Joan of Arc did not become a saint because she resigned. She was a warrior. St. Francis didn't resign. He left his military experiences and committed himself to a life of poverty. Everything he did was in actively to realize that that love, that faith, okay? We're not to resign on ourselves, we're not to give up. We're asked to pick up a cross and whatever the differences are in our marriages, in our families, in our culture, to live Christ, to help people be better. That may be 
a real struggle between a man and a wife. I take it in our culture that that's true today. Marriage is a struggle. Mar marriages have so little help from our culture. God. Um, From the Bible, there emerges also a vision of man as imago Dei. The vision offers indications regarding man's life, his freedom, and mortality of the human spirit. Since the created world is not self-sufficient, every illusion of autonomy, which would deny the essential dependence on God of every creature, the human being included, <coughs> leads to a dramatic situation, leads to dramatic situations which subvert the rational search for the harmony and the meaning of life. If we take away God and the belief that we're made in an image and that we're self-sufficient so that we don't need to turn to him, we're lost. That's what the world is claiming by and large. The problem, and here's where it hits, here's where it hits home, the problem of moral evil, the most tragic of evil forms, is also addressed in the Bible which tells us that such evil stems not from any material deficiency, but is a wound inflicted by the disordered exercise of human freedom. There's an old philosophy called Manichaeism. Catch this, everybody. There's an old philosophy called Manichaeism. It's ancient. The Manichaeans believed that the body was evil and spirit good and the two were locked in an eternal conflict. Nobody could ever get free from it. That was a religious belief. Body's evil, spirit's good. Calvin's attitude towards the body was that it was inherently bad, evil. Physical matter, that's a Calvinistic principle. He looks at the body as a degrading thing. What was one of John Paul's greatest contributions to the modern world? Theology of the He's trying to answer what is a modern illness. We all grew up with it. Did any of us know this when we were young? You know, what, what effect has it had? We, I mean, the body is a good thing. Lest anybody forget this, God thought enough of it to enter it. When he did that, he made everything physical sacred. Material or evil does not stem from matter. It comes from the use of, God made nothing evil. It comes from our abuse of our own free will. But if we don't know these things, how well can we struggle against them? Page 101, it's the same section 80 in the middle. The fundamental conviction of the philosophy found in the Bible is that the world and human life do have a meaning and look towards their fulfillment, which comes in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the incarnation of divinity taking on a carnal nature. In, remember the carnation poem that we read? Mm -hmm. Little girl who loved carnations. Carnation, flesh. Our God loved flesh enough to assume it. The mystery of the Incarnation will always remain the central point of reference for an understanding of the enigma of human existence, the created world and God himself. That has got to be central to anything we do. Now he goes on at this point to say, and this is where, this is where he's hitting home, he said, this call, now remember, if, if I can 
briefly summarize. John Paul has been saying to this point, God, Christ revealed God in all of his truth. He says, everything you need to know is here. In me you see the Father. If you know the Father, you would know me. So, in, and we've, I've said this again and again, in, in John, the Gospel of John, repeat seven times, I think, there's just seven or eight episodes. In each one of them he says, I am, I am, I am, I am. In me, you see the Father. Because the Father is, I am. I am that am. That's his name. So when Christ did that, the Jews were horrified because they believed he was committing a blasphemy. For anybody to say that was to claim he was God. Um, Christ says again, I am, I am. We know the Father, we know the heavenly kingdom through Christ. What is there not to know? Everything's been told us, the truth is here. The great emphasis of the encyclical is every other truth has to keep that one fact in mind. And in any philosophy that denies it, the church has got to be on guard about it. It has to be careful. Because the old effort of the world is to take what's been given by revelation and reconcile it with the various philosophies of the world. That's the whole thrust of his book. Yeah. So he says, that's our call. And to, um, to fulfill it, we're going to have to meet several requirements. This is in section 81. To be consonant with the word of God, to be in harmony with the word of God, philosophy needs, first of all, to recover its sapiential dimension. It has to recover a love of wisdom. Sapiential means wisdom. On page 103, section 82. Yet the sapient sapiential function would not be performed by philosophy which was not itself a true and authentic knowledge. Address that is not only particular and subordinate aspects of reality, functional, formal, utilitarian, whatever it is, but to its total and definitive truth, to the very being of the object which is known. That, that again is ontology, the study of being and things, because all things are united because they share in their being. They exist, they have an existence. A tree has existence with a river, or a man, or a flower, or an animal. This prompts a second requirement that philosophy verify the, now hold on to this, that philosophy verify the human capacity to know the truth, to come to a knowledge which can reach objective truth by means of that adequatio re est intellectus. Every knowledge that claims to be a genuine knowledge has to justify itself because it can specify the object of its knowledge. If you can't specify that object, you can't say you know it. That's a condition of science. We have to be able to specify the object of our knowledge and do it adequately. Adequatio. Specify object. Specify. So, here. Um, has, has Freud verified, adequately verified, because remember, Freud's dealing, Freud doesn't believe in free will. He believes that certain things are determined. Remember, the aim of science is to deal with those things that can't be other than they are. DNA, 
whatever's there can't be other. It's fixed. It's a law. Science has ever discovered those laws. I'm going too fast. Science sets out to discover laws that are inherent in nature, constancies. Okay? So they're determined. And in the modern world, they're determined in matter. That's why matter is such an issue here. That's why John Paul said, matter is not a source of evil. It's not. So in order to claim that something's been scientifically verified, it has to stand um, the, the test of experiments. And the truth of a hypothesis has to be proven. You have to be able to specify what is adequately to show that it's true. Has Freud adequately proven that um, what he calls polymorphous perverse or an edible complex? That every, every boy grows up wanting to have sex with his mother and kill his father? That's Freud's, that's his basic premise. Has he proven that? Can he specify it adequately? Do all cases prove it, illustrate it? <coughs> No, no. no it, he hasn't. In fact, one of, one of the, it's really interesting, a literary critic, I mean, he's in the field that is my field. I don't agree with him, but um, he's Jewish and he uses Freud. He makes it clear himself. He says, what Freud's doing is not science, it's speculation. It's a speculative mode of knowledge. And there's a good in it because it speaks some truth. But it can be, can it be verified and adequately specified? Can we get it down and say, experiences have shown this to be true in all cases? It's a law? No, he cannot, cannot. So the first requirement was to recover wisdom. The second is, we've got to hold a knowledge to its truth claims. We have to be able to say whether it's true or not and specify what it knows adequately. And he goes on to say that without a metaphysical um, grasp of things, we won't be able to understand things as they are. Now, on page 108, section 86, he lists the disorders of the modern world. I think he lists six of them. I'm going to put them on the board in a second, but. Um, um, section 80, relativism, or sorry, no, no, um, section 85, eclecticism, section 87, historicism, um, section 88, scientism, um, section 89, pragmatism, section 90, nihilism. Those are among the dominant disorders in our modern world. That is, from John Paul's perspective, believe you to the word of God that God has revealed. Each one of those currents of thought or schools or philosophies, whatever you want to call it, these, these tendencies, is in some ways out of tune with the word, with universal truths. So he's identifying those things that we, we have to be able to answer. Okay? Let me just hold on, finish this if I can. Um, go to 113, I'll give you the section, just hold on. Um, 
This is section 91. He's arguing against historicism. In a, um, um, he's taking that on in some ways, but he says here in section 91, towards the end, the middle of the uh, paragraph, he says, lots of people today um, name, have given the name of postmodern to our world. Lots of people would say it's post-Christian, I, I think accurately, post-Christian, that we have gone beyond a Christian world to the modern mind. We have escaped superstition. We've entered a world of reason. If we could only get rid of these superstitious people who wanted these religious beliefs, we could bring in a good world. So it's, it's um, post-Christian, uh, post-modern. He says, our age has been termed by some thinkers the age of postmodernity, often used in very different contexts. Go down a few lines. The term was first used with reference to aesthetic, social, and technological phenomena because we have advanced so much in technology, we, we think we can create a virtual world. So we've created a postmodern world. We're going beyond modernism because we can recreate this world with our powers. He, he gives he uses the, the word demiurge to identify those who think that way. The very end of that, he says, of section 91, even so it remains true that a certain positive cast of mind continues to nurture the illusion that thanks to scientific and technical progress, man and woman may live as a demiurge, single-handedly and completely taking charge of their destiny. Demiurge is somebody with exceptional powers, but it has the ring of being godlike that we think we can create a world, that nobody, nobody can tell us what to do, nobody can convince us um, that what my way of thinking is wrong. I can make my world, I can do what I want, I have these demiurgic powers. Above, just below that, he says, one thing, however, is certain. The currents of thought which claim to be postmodern merit appropriate attention. His, his tone is so mild. I would have a hard time controlling my anger. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm writing on these things and I, I, have to, I have to struggle. I mean, I make real efforts to be as disinterested as I can in my writing. I would think you would see that from me if you've read any of it. But, but I'm just amazed at the pains he takes to be <coughs> more, <coughs> very charitable. One thing, however, assert the currents of thought which claim to be postmodern <coughs> merit appropriate attention. Because my inclination would be, you need to get with it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be as nice. Merit appropriate According to some of them, the time of certainties, this is the one line I want to underline. According to some of them, the time of certainties is irrevocably past. And the human being must now learn to live in a horizon of total absence of meaning, where everything is provisional and ephemeral. In their destructive critique of every certitude, several authors have failed to make crucial distinctions as have called into question certitudes of faith. Is that, are those statements clear? According to postmodern thinkers, the, the time of certainties is past. We live in an age in which there are no longer any certainties. We live in a scientific age in which discoveries are constantly 
going beyond previous discoveries. So we think there's, um, we can create a world, we can do whatever we want, it's there for us to do. Um, discoveries will replace, new discoveries will replace old. So the old certitudes are gone. His concern is, they've all tend to question the certitudes of faith. Anybody holding to a faith belongs in a pre-modern world. Is that clear? Because we live in a post-modern world. What marks the difference is the place that certainties have. Because in our world, they're said, all there is is existence, there's no God, you can do what you want, things are dark. That age of certainties or of faith is past. That's what we're facing. Okay. Go on over section 94. An initial problem is that of the relationship between meaning and truth. And this is one, this is a notion he's been repeating through the whole encyclical. Like every other text, the sources which the theologian interprets primarily transmit a meaning which needs to be grasped and explained. This meaning presents itself as the truth about God, which God himself communicates through the sacred text. God used language. He used the prophets. Otherwise, how would we know of him? We cannot say our language is inadequate. And moreover, who's the center of our faith? He's called the Word. We see him using words constantly. And like Socrates, he's making a lot of people mad. But are his words inadequate to describe what he's doing? Do we come away from John thinking we don't have a better sense of the Father? If we want to see the Father, watch Christ. What he does, the way he uses reason, the arguments he makes, the teaching that he does with his disciples, and he backs all of those up with the acts, the miracles of a God. <coughs> Human language thus embodies the language of God who communicates his own truth with that wonderful condescension which mirrors the logic of the incarnation. In, incarnate means the word became flesh. Words were given to us to help God continue to do what he began. In interpreting the sources of revelation then, the theologian needs to ask, what is the deep authentic truth which the text wished to communicate even within the limits of language? He says this again and again over on, at the end of 95, um, section 95. Human language may be conditioned by history and constricted by other ways, but the human being can still express truths which surpass the phenomenon of language. Truth can never be confined to time and culture. In history it is known, but it also reaches beyond history. Every poet that I've, we've read together is putting us in a situation where we're describing something very real and concrete with a little girl of four years old, a bird in the sky, kingfishers flying, stones rumbling down a well, right? You can't get more ordinary than that. And yet it was what he's revealing in every one of those poems is something more is going on. There's something else there. Do we see it? The poet is helping through his use of language. Okay, okay let me stop. I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put these. Would you, you're writing so much more legible doc. <laughs> Everybody would be grateful, <laughs> including me.
Here, because I had it. These are um, these are the disorders that we've inherited. These, these are the things that we're going to run into everywhere. Okay. Um, Um, Melody and Heather and Tess and all of you online, these, these should have been on the notes that I sent you, so you should have them, even though you can't see the board. Materialism, relativism, eclecticism, historicism, scientism, pragmatism, nihilism, immanentism. So my question tonight is, let's start. Let's take each one of these up. And I'd like to put it to you guys. If you ran into somebody who held any one of these positions, what would you say? What kind of questions would you ask? You know that I'm encouraging everybody to start your swing of your bat with a question. <laughs> um, but before we start on these, any, any questions or comments on, this really is the end of John Paul's argument. The conclusion is, really a summary, it's, it's just calling to mind what he's been saying, and he ends with a prayer to Mary. And you know that if, if you've read the conclusion that he's saying that Mary is the summit of philosophy. I wish everybody would think about that. When we think about philosophy, we think about Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, um, St. Thomas, um, Hegel, Kant, Heidegger, um, Descartes, those are philosophers. People don't think of Mary as philosophy. Remember there was that section early in Fide Orazio where John Paul mentioned the importance of death for philosophy. It was one of the notions that Socrates introduced into the philosophic enterprise because he loved it enough to die for it. The truth meant that much. So implicitly, in the beginnings, in the very beginnings of philosophy, we understand that to speak the truth, to struggle to find the truth, puts our life at risk. Either our, our TVs and our full refrigerators and you know, our insurance policies will keep us comfortable, or we put those things at risk. But death has been associated with it. Here at the end, he offers prayers to Mary and, and asks us to see her as the image of real philosophy. Why would that be? Here, let me read the end. This is the end of Fidelis. May Mary, seat of wisdom, be a sure haven for all who devote their lives to the search for wisdom. May the journey into wisdom, sure and final goal of all true knowledge, be freed of every hindrance by the intercession of the one who, in giving birth to the truth and treasuring it in her heart, has shared it forever to the world. She is the exemplar of philosophy. Somebody make sense of that. Connie, you've got that. Why is he asking us to turn to her when ordinarily in the modern world people would think Descartes, Kant, Hegel? What's he saying? 
I mean, she's just a model of all virtues. You know, she, just like in Dante, I mean, every, when they're in purgatory, I mean, every step, who were they, the good was Mary's virtues, right. and then, of course, your sins were. Good for you. Yeah. She doesn't have in her way the pride or the excessive ambition that most philosophers have. You know, and she gave, she gave birth to the truth. She, she took it into her whole life, her whole being. She was at the cross. I mean, she suffered everything, the death. There's not an aspect of life that, that doesn't become a part of her life and everything she did. So he's ending appropriately saying, pray to Mary. May Mary, seed of wisdom, be a sure haven for all of us. May their journey into wisdom be freed of every hindrance. That is all those, you know, how, how many philosophers have the humility to get rid of all the faults they have in their character in order to philosophy as well, to philosophize well. So, anyway, that's that's the uh, that's the sum. But before we turn to these disorders, anybody have any comments about the whole of the encyclical and why it's so important for our time? I, I love what Suzanne said on the way here. You know, she was praising all of you guys. Um, she's been reading it and and. She, when I ask her, she often comes out of it shaking her head and saying, it's just a hard read. <laughs> it's not an easy read for the reason that he's taking the whole tradition of our faith and he's particularly mindful of important encyclicals and he makes a point, even at the end, it's been over a hundred years since that Pope made a call for philosophy. That was the beginning of the modern world, or the beginning of the 20th century. He's the first Pope to write an encyclical, and this encyclical was not well received. There are lots of priests who've never read it. Suzanne was praising you guys because you're reading it and struggling with these things and are being asked to evangelize. I mean, the church is asking all of us to evangelize, and I didn't plan this going ahead. I mean, these weren't my motives, but I'm, I'm just, I'm struck by the irony of it that we're all together here being encouraged to evangelize and to use our powers of reason. Can we do that? But I want to get to how well we can use our powers of reasons here. But before we do, any, any comments on the whole of the encyclical or questions or? I have a question. Who? Tina. Tina. Who's that? Sorry. Tina. Tina, good. What is meant by universal? Universal just means universe, all. So um, when Suzanne and I were on the way and we were talking about historicism, I was just asking her. Um, and um, you know the historicist argument is that truths are conditioned on the historical period. So you live today, the truths today are gonna be different from what they were 600 years ago or 500 years ago. People, his, people who have that historicist mindset thinks that all truths are relative to a historical period. And so I said, give me an illustration to defeat it, to answer it, because that's where we're gonna go. I'm giving you guys help here. Um, she said, so, I don't know what, a thousand years ago or whenever it was before the, people believe the world was flat 
you know, and, and, and then they discovered the world isn't flat, that it's round. And now the, we see that we were wrong before and we know the truth now. Well, I was playing devil's advocate the way I do and said, but knowing what we know now, there are lots of people, this is the modern temper, there are lots of people going to say, but that's not right. Because in the same way that people thought they knew the truth then, and we, that the world was flat, and we've discovered the world is round, at some point in the future, there are going to be people who are going to show the world is not the way we saw it now. That we thought we had the truth and it won't. Is everybody following? That's a historic, it's a skeptical, it's a, it's a legitimate, to me it's a legitimate question. So I said, give me an example of an unchanging truth. <coughs> By the way, the devil's advocate just did not rest here. But, but um, she said, it's a truth unchanging that all people have two legs, or two arms, or ear, or head. I mean, I went beyond that because I, being the devil's advocate, I said, but very often human beings can um, be born without a leg, or they can lose a leg, they can lose their arms, but that, does, that doesn't take away their humanity. Their, their essence is man. Because this, this is getting a little bit ahead, but, but it, it's true. Is everybody understand? You can take away an arm and a leg, right? And somebody can still be a human. Can you take away the human brain and heart and still be a human being? Or the lungs? Because some things are constitutive elements. They constitute that person. Take those things away, and that thing loses its essence. The famous example is the mousetrap. If you take the spring or the platform or any one of those things away, it ceases to function. If you take away certain things in the human being, the, certain, the human being ceases to be a living human being. In fact, in fact, I think that's one of the arguments for abortion. I don't agree with that, but, and I don't want to go into that right now. But So, Tina, universal simply means it applies to all cases. It's true universally. So, it's a universal, so I, if I can, I would say, what John Paul's defending is that there are universal truths. I'd say this to illustrate what he's saying. So the desire to love, the desire to search for something beyond, the desire for justice, things like that, are universal. You'll find them in Africa, in India, in Asia, in China. A desire for a good political regime um, that supports those truths. Remember that was one of the, those of you who've been doing this for a while. One of Plato's great truths was there's an order, a nature, an essence to the human being. Human beings have minds, intellects, and wills. They can think about things, they can make a choice. Can we just, um, if a political regime forms itself in a way that's out of tune with that nature, what will happen to those human beings? See, out loud. An uprising. Sorry? An uprising. Right. Either that or there'd be a suppression. I mean, it's like the Russians suppressing the church. I mean, they would, they would do everything they could to destroy anything that dis opposed them. So these truths, to love, to be just, to have a good political regime, to, to form a good community because it's only in a community that we can become who we are, those are universal truths. 
where people deny them and act in accordance with those denials, there are problems always. The Catholic faith presents itself as having the whole of the truth and the whole effort of this is to encourage us to you to recover a sense of the importance of philosophy so that we can use our powers of reason to defend that truth. Michelle, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was thinking of euthanasia, like when you were talking about limbs and arms and everything, and somebody like in a coma, or you know, that are like a life support. Right. So were you just saying that they, they they didn't have the same human dignity if they didn't have the brain. No, but you're. Working. No, I did want to say that. What I'm. Okay, I'm glad that's a good question. A coma is a threshold question. It's a borderline question. People are kept on life support in the hope that they'll recover. Mm -hmm. That's why some. I mean, that's why power of attorney and people make these decisions. Why some people keep them on because they'll they hope they they do it on the hope that they'll recover or they're. The efforts are pointless, fruitless. Why keep somebody alive when they're turned into a vegetable? This, you know, lots of people will say, take it off. They're not human. Lots of people hold on in the belief that there's some possibility, a miracle or faith or, or some technological something that will happen. But they, none of them would do that unless they hoped that that person re could recover his mind, his heart, his to be a human being, um, in contrast to a vegetable. Because remember, man, man belongs to the vegetable world, the animal world. We have those parts, a vegetative soul, when we wound ourselves, it repairs itself in our body. There's a vegetative, an animal, a rational, there's components to, our, to the human being. We're one with nature, with all these other levels, we also have something they do with our our rational soul or mind. So. And in a case like that, where do you let nature take its course? Yeah, and the interesting thing is, boy, you guys are, the interesting thing is where can we assist nature when nature fails? You or, know, or the other question that somebody might say is, well, let God's will be done. Did God Is God willing for this person to die now and you're using scientific stuff to keep him going? Yeah. I hope, I mean, I'm not going to give any, the one that I just gave a minute ago, wait, because you're, one of the questions is, nature's imperfect, so if you break a leg, let's say, a good doctor, whenever there's any problem with a human being, a, a doctor cannot be a good doctor unless he prescribes a course of treatment that will help nature do what it was intending to do, whether it's prescribing medicine or surgery. So when a person breaks a leg, nature breaks down. Um, medical science can step in and... Um, intervene. Yeah. Help me out. Intervene? Well, yeah, intervene and, and join the, the bones again so that the leg can begin yeah. to grow again and the person can return. So medicine or law, it doesn't matter. Teaching. Every one of those professions rests on the assumption that there's a nature to things and by learning it, it can help us do something. A good lawyer wants to achieve justice. He, shouldn't, he should not be doing something that's against justice. 
A good doctor should not be doing something against our nature. But it brings us to threshold cases, shells where a person has lost consciousness, and, and then all sorts of other harder questions come into play. Do you leave him there? Do you do it on the faith that God come in or, or give it a time? I mean, that's, it's not like anybody has an easier answer. And the question of, of God intervening goes exactly to this because John Paul is saying, keep our powers of reason alive, even in an act of faith, knowing that faith is always a higher power. But every well, faith, that every... Gal that was, you know, dying, what was her name? And it was like forever. Terry Shiner. Terry She wasn't actually dying, that was the problem. That was the problem. Yeah, but she was in a coma, right? And she was I want to get to these disorders directly. <laughs> Come on, go. Okay, so based on what you read here, it's that um, uh, we must now learn to live in a horizon of total absence of meaning where everything is provisional and ephemeral. So it's our, That's the position it's a lot our, of moderns are taking. So it's our duty to change these people's minds or should we just try to show them hints of what we believe is true? You know, it goes back to what I've been saying before. I mean, let me, let me bring it down a couple of notches. When you're disagreeing with a neighbor, I'm sorry the woman who raised that question, you can't use force to, you can't use a gun and say, change your mind. You can't take a bat to these people. John Paul is pointing out the, the dominant, the dominant characteristics of the modern world. This goes back to Plato and the whole beginning of our tradition, it really does. And it, it's why John Paul said, we cannot lose that Greco-Roman world because it prepared for Christ. If you look at all the discoveries that Plato and Aristotle made, it's like they're, philosophically, there's something just off the horizon. Um, Socrates went to his death because he kept asking these questions and people would not change their minds. The, the, the opening of Plato's Republic, one of the founding works of Western civilization is a group of people gather around Socrates and force him to come along to answer this question about justice. The opening question is, what do you do with people who don't listen? How universal is that problem? If you go to any of these people holding materialism, eclecticism, um, historicism. Um, <laughs> I mean, I gave. I, I thought Karen's was, you know. But what do you do when you come up against somebody who has a philosophy, who's absolutely obstinate because they have they hold to a philosophy. It's not just a feeling in somebody's heart. It's a philosophy, and they have the support of hundreds of thousands of people. How easy is that going to be? Boy, it's just I don't. I want to be careful. I do not want to do anything to discourage anybody. But, but that's our world. We're asked to, I want to get here because I want to see if there are, what can we do, okay? So let me go there, okay? So sorry. You are troubled. Um, I was thinking about, um, like Jesus said to his disciples, if, if they don't, you go and preach, and if you don't, if they don't listen, you know. Shake the dust. Shake yeah. the dust off your, and move on. Right. Yes. So that, that was my point that I mentioned the last time was that basically that's kind of what we're dealing with with people like that. You know, well, let me let me try to listen. let me try. Yeah, 
but I don't, that can't be a reason for not doing it. The two options are dust the feet off or um, martyrdom. We're back to death again. You know, remember, I mean, John Paul is so wise. He said the beginnings of the philosophic tradition were associated with death. Socrates was the first great established philosopher went to his death. Thomas Becket, Thomas More was beheaded by Henry because he opposed the crown. Our, the saints, by and large, in our faith, lots of them died from martyrdoms, persecution. So I just want to keep, you know, that's, that's not a way of discouraging, it's a way of saying those are, that's our world. And the question has to be not just, it can't be not just people don't listen, um, how deep is our courage or our faith? You know, do we, um, I keep trying to avoid extremes. We don't bludgeon people, we don't take a shotgun out and, but um, we're asked to live, make these things living, you know, to, that word, um, to risk offending somebody who's not going to like what we say. Parisia, remember that word? John Paul used it. We have to have the courage to, to say things, even when we know it's going to offend somebody um, and make them upset with us. Paul always started with the idea of find something in common that they may have. Yeah. Then, yes. based off that, to try to improve the thinking. Yes. So yeah. at the beginning, they felt that all Christians were good. And then... <laughs> Well, some, some believe we're evil. Yes, then that's it. But the belief though right. is that they're all good, and then yet some yeah. more than not. Thomas More didn't hit people over the head. He just lived it. And we're told to, to present our arguments with love. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. The word that he uses in late in chapter 7 was kenosis. I added it in our terms. Kenosis means K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis, kenosis, it's in our notes. Yeah. Kenosis, the meaning of that word is self-emptying. The great, great mystery, can scientific reason get its head around this? Kenosis, that a God could empty himself? When Christ took on our nature, wait, we believe in a trinity of persons, yeah? The God, the Father, same God of the Jews, um, Yahweh. Mm -hmm. But Christ made something clear that wouldn't have been clear to the Jews before he came. Because he keeps talking about himself as the Son and the Spirit comes. So he, he complicates the mystery. There's a God. What comes into play after Christ comes into the world is when God conceives himself, when he understands himself. That, so um, when you're reading a book, Connie's reading a book, she has a concept of that book, yeah? She just did it. Mary is here, 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 here. That's a concept. And she can illustrate each one of the stages to show Mary was free of all those faults. That's a concept, yeah? Um, God, I'm going too fast. Where's it going? You're doing great. No, I'm not. <laughs> the Trinity, she has a concept. When, you write, when you're asked to write a paper in an English class in high school, 
you have a theme, right? A, an idea, right? When you start writing, don't you very often find that what you're writing doesn't quite fit that idea and you miss and you tear it up or you correct? Because you've got this idea in your head, right? Since God's perfect, when he has a concept of himself, can that concept be any less than he is or imperfect? No. Yes? No. Is that right? No, no. Okay, are you disagreeing? <laughs> right? We can, we can have a concept of a book and write a paper on it and find it's not quite what I wanted to say. Or, you know. We can misunderstand a poem. We can misconceive it. We can misread it. But there's a meaning there we could conceive it. When God conceived himself, he couldn't have conceived of anything greater or less than himself. That conception, the image of himself, is who? His son, the only begotten. Is God, his son created? No, he's not. He's one uncreated, co-substantial with his father. He's begotten. He's one of his being. That's why he shares Godhead. The love between them is called the spirit. Right? They perfectly indwell. That's why I read that passage the other week where one is not less than two in the Trinity and two is not more than one. They are one divine God, three, three persons in relationship. Yes? yes. Where am I going? <laughs> Got him. Where is it going? We're talking about... The concept. No, but Thomas More. Oh, thanks. God. <laughs> it's getting worse and worse. Just getting worse. I am so grateful for your help. Thanks. Thanks. Kenosis, self-emptying. Thank you, Dave. God, just losing it. You guys all want to leave. I, I won't take it personally. Um, when God took on our human nature, or Christ, was the Son still present with the Father when Christ took on our nature? Were there two beings? No. No. Still Christ would become schizophrenic really quickly. <laughs> Is everybody following? Paul says he emptied himself. Get your heads around that. God emptied himself in order to take on our human nature. And get your heads around this. T having taken on our nature, he took it back to heaven to take his place with his father, where he would be one with his father, infinite, with a human nature. How's that for a mystery? When we finish the Divine Comedy, those of you who remember it, Dante looks at the Trinity and he said he can't get his head around that odd third piece. Because how do you square an infinite God with a human being? Let me do it differently. When God was here, and Christ was here, he said, take eat of my body, my blood. You know, the Lots of the Jews left, the murmuring disciples, they all left because it was blasphemous. It was insane to say that. You don't drink the blood of a human being. Um, when he was here, he couldn't do anything more because of his human limitations. When he returned to God and took our human nature with him and assumed his infinite nature again, what limits were on him then? 
just think about the Eucharist. There are those stories in the, in the Bible, if you go back to um, Elisha and Isaiah, when they went to the widow, remember, and her, her wheat never ran out. There are two of them. Um, and, there, and there was more left over, and the wheat never ran out. Oil. Oil. There was one of them, was, I think wheat too. Um, can Christ's self-giving, infinite, ever run out? I'm, what I'm trying to do right now is use my powers of reason to enter into a Christian mystery. Can science ever get around that? No, they wouldn't because they wouldn't even allow for spirit. I mean an infinite spirit. They're, they're too constrained by matter. Is everybody following? So um, kenosis means self-emptying. Um, Christ asked to go back to the point that you were, you know, that Suzanne was making, that Thomas More. Um, the saints align themselves with Christ by an act of self-emptying, charity. I mean, they're, they're instead of, um, instead of holding back, you know, they risk themselves completely. They offer themselves completely when it's hard. So I want to do everything I can to say, I mean, I, I can't think of harder things. To be with Christ is hard. This is what we're facing. Can we draw on our powers of reason to answer people holding these positions, okay? So let me go to them, let me go to them, okay? Does everybody understand the point that I was making with kenosis? Mm -hmm. The self-emptying and that, that Christ is, that's why we're called to a cross, to deny ourselves, to empty ourselves. Is he saying passively resign? His whole life was actively confronting, teaching, offering himself. Um, but the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate act was death. But you can say his whole life would involve the self-emptying. He left the, he says, the son of man has no pillow to call his own or no home. Christ was in exile. He emptied himself. He, we're all in exile from our home. That's St. Augustine. We're in exile. Our, we're meant to be with our father. Christ was in exile coming here to take us back or to help us back. So the act of kenosis that John Paul talks about is not obviously, not, if, we're, if we're called to evangelize to take Christ, it asks a lot of us. Evangelizing is not an easy thing. I'm so glad that Suzanne said what she did because you know the, the big push in the church right now is to evangelize. I keep wondering, what is the church doing to help us do that? Somebody, I don't remember, it was Michelle, I think it was another woman, said, she, yeah, was, she said, the church doesn't teach us how to think or how to do something. And I thought, that's a hard thing. Suzanne's point was right, you guys have been doing this for a while. You're not doing an easy thing. Let's go to this. If somebody holds a materials view, what view is that? What's their premise? What's their basic premise? Huh? Yeah, David. What I think was it you or somebody? Who said it? Was it Michael? Was it? What's the basic premise of the materialist view of life? There's nothing else but matter. There's nothing else but matter. John, yeah. Almighty God. Sorry. Almighty God. Almighty is matter. Almighty God. 
Oh, dollar. dollar. Yeah. 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 The way I think of it is, it, it, if I can't see it, touch it, smell it, uh, hear it, yeah. well, hearing is a little different. Yeah. Then it doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to beginnings. A materialist view of life doesn't just mean all I care about are material things. The almighty dollar, I, you know, I want, I want to be able to get all these material things and fill my home with. I don't want to be deprived of all these things. The premise behind that way of looking is that there's nothing more but matter. That's behind it all. So whatever other forms, you know, like if I can't feel it or touch it or um, eat, eat, drink, and be merry today for there is no tomorrow, there is no eternal, so there's just matter. Huh? Yeah. Eat, drink, and be merry because there is no tomorrow. There's no immortal soul. All there is is matter. That's the premise. So everything else follows from that. Buying things, constantly filling up our houses with things. My question is now, what, how do we answer that position? You don't Melody, I was, sorry. Melody, I, just, I would love to hear, or Heather, or anybody, um, how, how to answer okay. I would ask that person, um, okay, let me look, because I just made a note. So, if there's nothing more than matter, then how do you attribute for a soul? And if they say they don't understand soul, if that doesn't mean anything to them, then I would say even animals have, you know, brain activity. So, show me where love comes from. Show me where intelligence comes from. Show me where the search for knowledge comes from. Because just because an animal has brain activity is not the same as a soul. So that's where I would say there's something more. And Christians believe that the soul comes from God, that we are made in the image and likeness, likeness of God. Okay, good. Uh, I, I'm going to be playing devil's advocate here. So, a neuroscientist, you know, who's looking towards artificial intelligence, because they believe that there is no soul, that we can create um, robots or create artificial. His response to you would be, what you're calling love is just um, electrons going off, sparking in our neural system. So you've romanticized this thing because you, you don't want to accept that you're this puny little thing made out of all these material cells, but that's all you are. So, um, point, wait, 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 point, point, point to love. Because what, I, what you're calling love, I'm calling all this activity that has its explanation in all these neurons and things going off in your neuron. So what do you say to when, when somebody comes back at you? I would say prove it. You know, you can, you can get electrons firing on a microscope, so show me where the love is. I mean, there's something more abstract there that they have to admit because they can't recreate love in a laboratory. Can Sorry? Can they create matter? That goes back to creation, yeah, that goes back to the beginning of things. The Big Bang and everything else. How do you explain someone dying for another? That would be That's a good because the pagans believed in that. They did that all, you know, oh yeah, an honorable death was the highest form of a samurai, you know, culture, so. 
But it's a good point. If, if life is all there is, how do you expend? So explain it, Karen. How, so if somebody s said, well, then what, what was their motive? What were they doing when they were giving up their life? If, what, what, how would you explain what they, the motives behind what they were doing? Or gods, yeah, for the, yeah. Anybody else? Did you have a, were you going to say something earlier? No. <laughs> How would you explain people changing their minds from, no, I, that's what, you know, from being totally materialistic to some people who, for example, um, I once went to a talk to, about with a doctor from the university who uh, his son was cured for cancer miraculously. And he said, I cannot talk about that at university because nobody wants to hear about my right. things. But right. I do believe, you know, so yep. how do people change their minds, you know, if something had not, hadn't really touched them? What something? How do you prove there's something? Right, right, right. I'm glad for any questions here. Um, if you can't, if you can't prove something, the assumption is it's an empiricist assumption that nothing's real unless you can prove it. How do you approach that? What line of questioning would you take if somebody said you can't prove it? If you can't prove it, it's not real. But you're so I'm assuming. So if you talk, if the teacher presented that, there would be a skeptic in the audience that would say, or question, they'd say, I don't believe that. Um, what you're talking about was a mere chance or an accident. I'm just trying to push this as hard as I can because um, these things are never easy. I mean, people didn't, people didn't arrive at these conclusions because they're stupid. They arrived at them because there's a lot of truth to them. You know. So if somebody says this miracle happened and nobody wants to believe it um, and says what you're describing was really a matter of chance or accident. You want to give it the name miracle. What do you say? I'm going to be pushing devil's advocate a lot. Yeah. Am I? No. No, sweet. And I was going to get out of time tonight. Any last responses to this? The what Thomas said, I gave you that handout for a week or two. What Thomas said is, um, how did he put it? Do you remember, Bob, you were, do you remember? Um, Materialism is all fleeing, right? Hmm? It's, all, it's all passing. Materialism is not there beyond itself. Thomas is saying matter is not the cause of itself. It can't. Matter doesn't explain things. A stone doesn't move on its own. An arm, if you cut it off, is not going to move on its own. A body doesn't cause itself. It goes back to, I think, David's, or, you know, the, um, what are the origins of matter? Ultimately, it goes back to that. If somebody's going to take a materials position, it's, it's got to go back to its first cause. What's the first cause for a materialist today? 
the Big Bang. An accident, a contingent. Right, here, remember I made that argument already. Every contingent thing, like a, um, a car hitting another car, a pool ball hitting another ball, or dropping a pan and burning something in the kitchen, every contingent event, and our life is full of contingent events, presupposes another contingent event. It has its own cause, right? We live in a world, jump out of a second story window, what's gonna happen? You're gonna break a leg or die. Every contingent event has a prior contingent event. If you look to them at causes, you'll go on indefinitely. Aristotle argued this, St. Thomas picked it up. To explain any con contingent event, you have to go to something that is non-contingent. Because otherwise the explanations will go on for them. They don't really explain. Yes, they don't explain. The Big Bang does not explain anything. It's another contingent event. It's an attempt, and think, God, this is stunning to me. If you look back at the ancient myths, because those of you who've been doing the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you, you know, it's more mythological than the ancient myths were about the beginnings of things. It's, it's an intellectual fiction, it's a myth. And, and what do the scientists say about it when they look at it in terms of probability? the development of a protein, it's, it's impossible that that could have happened. Science cannot prove that. It cannot. So for a scientist to go back is to go back to something to make a claim he cannot prove. And if you look at the probability of it's happening, there's no probability. It's a million to the millionth power. Those are not explanations. Those are fabrications in the mind. Matter does not cause itself. You have to look to another cause for matter. So the ultimate answer to anybody taking up this argument will take you there. I'm stopping because I was, I promised to myself, you were getting out on time tonight. <laughs> and I failed again. Let me stop. When we continue next week, I'd, I'd like everybody to read, give me a chance, Mary. I'd like everybody to read, uh, Benedict's um, Regensburg. It's 10 pages, it's very short. I'm not sure that we'll get to it. I want to cover, I want to get through every one of these things. And I'm assuming we'll get through them and I know that's an unsafe assumption. <laughs> so read Regensburg, it's short. Be ready to argue because Benedict is saying, we've lost a sense of the logos of reason in nature. We have to recover it. That's a pope. Two popes in the modern world are saying, <laughs> we have lost our minds. We have to recover them if we're, if, we're going, if we're going to help our faith. Okay? See you guys. See you guys next week. Good to see you. Good to see you both. Tessa, good to see you. Melody. Where's Heather? I think she left, yeah. I think she left. Yeah, I can just bring this with me. Can you go to that? Mike. Yes. You got to be here next week. I will. To hook up. To hook up.
Who did yes, anybody? I, I actually showed Dave what, what I did. Okay. Okay. So, you can make sure Dave is, yes. is here this week. Can you just turn it on? There's a switch in a box. That's all I needed to do? Yeah, he should. There's more fruit in the back if Sessions, but I'll be back on track. Karen, I hope you'll forgive me for tonight. Good. Good.